Thought Leadership from PwC. Don't assume that the terms of your agreements are the same as what you might see in other public companies or other SPACs or other companies that have gone public. That's my guest, Chip Curry, a PwC National Office Partner. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the third episode in our Facts on Facts mini-series. Today, we're looking at the various types of financial instruments that you may see in a SPAC transaction. We'll look at common arrangements, and Chip will answer some of our key questions. So Chip, thanks so much for joining me today. And the topic we're talking about in terms of SPAC, I think is one that's gotten a lot of press. And that's the question of liability versus equity determinations for equity linked financial instruments. So just to kick things off, can you share with us some of the common arrangements, and then we can get into some key questions? Yeah, sure, Heather. So, so, um, there's a couple of financial instruments that, that, that people typically associate with SPAC transactions. Um, but maybe we'll start with warrants. So warrants are options that people have that enable them to buy uh, the company's common stock. All right. And then who in these transactions are those warrants typically issued to? Uh, you know, it can vary. I mean, I think typically the warrants get issues to sort of the founders of the sponsors of the SPAC when, when it's formed. Typically, there's another issuance of warrants to the public when, when the SPAC sort of executes its, its IPO. And in a lot of cases, I think the warrants get issued at the same time, like the, the shares of the SPAC get issued to the public. Warrants might also get issued to pipe investors and uh, pipes. I mean, that's the acronym for like private investments in a public entity. And, and sometimes they'll issue more warrants when, uh, you know, the SPAC actually acquires like an operating company in an effort to raise additional capital. But I mean, I, I mean, they could be issued to employees, providers of goods or services. Um, you know, we see some bit of diversity out there as to, to where when we see these or who they're issued to. And then Chip, for these pipe investors, for people who may be less familiar with that terminology, is there a typical type of entity that would be that type of investor or who do we typically see in that role? Um, a lot of times it's like uh, investment companies um, that enter into you know the, the, the pipe transactions is probably the most typical. All right. That's helpful. And so then I know you mentioned this, but just to really hone in on it, at what timing do we normally see these warrants issued? Yeah, that's it's it's a good thing to focus on because I think like like sometimes like I said or most of the time they're issued like at the formation of the SPAC and when the SPAC goes public. So that's before the SPAC actually acquires an an operating company. And, and sometimes we see them issued as part of compensation arrangements uh with you know, employees, members of the board of directors or, or service providers. And then again, um, we see them when when sometimes it actually closes an acquisition as, as it's raising capital coincident with the closing of the acquisition. But but the really important thing to note is even if these warrants or other instruments are issued while it's still a SPAC, if you will, before it, it, it acquires an operating company, um, most of the time, these arrangements survive that acquisition. And so they continue on for a number of years, even after, you know, the, the, the SPAC has, has acquired an operating company. So 
um, they're not instruments that we can just forget about or just kind of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, those are going to go away when X, Y, and Z happens. It's typically not the case. They typically stay outstanding. All right. And then, so I think that's all really helpful context. And depending on how familiar our listeners are with stocks, they may or may not know all of what you've just run through. But let's get now into the accounting now that we have that background. So where, what should people focus on first from an accounting perspective? Well, you might, you might hear me say this a couple of times. Well, I know, Heather, you hear me say it all the time. <laughs> but uh, you, you really need to understand like the facts of the, the, of the Warren arrangements. And all my guests say this. <laughs> and they can be very complicated. Um, in some cases, I like to say that these arrangements can be like snowflakes. Like they're, they're all a little bit different, um, even when people are leveraging existing deals or structures that have been out in the marketplace before. Um, and, and so what are the things that we typically focus on when thinking through the accounting? Um, the, one of the things we, we always focus on is when are the warrants exercisable? Are the warrants redeemable or do they have other features that are sort of, they're, they're forced to design the holder of the warrant to actually exercise the warrant prior to its, to its maturity date? Um, we always ask if there's any, and we'll, we'll hit on this a little bit later, change in control or tender offer provisions in the warrant agreements. That's, that's a popular question. Um, we also have been asking about whether the returns of those warrants could be capped and if in, in, in what situations do those caps come into effect? And, and a lot of these are really focused, Heather, I think on, are there provisions that can cause changes in the settlement terms of the warrant? You know, how it settles you know, and, and for what value that it settles. It's also really important to understand why they were issued and who they were issued to, because that actually could really be a key determinant in what accounting model that you're, you're in. And the last thing I'd say, I mean, is sometimes like understanding these provisions actually requires some fairly detailed discussions with with legal counsel to, to make sure that they're being interpreted correctly and, and e as equally as important and perhaps even more complicated, how sometimes different terms within the agreement interact with each other. So Chip, last week I spoke to Matt Sabatini about accounting acquirer, and you mentioned that these usually will survive sort of the acquisition. Does it matter who is the deemed the acquirer in terms of any of this accounting? It can, um, you, you know, it, it can. I mean, in a lot of cases, determining the accounting acquirer will be important to determine what, how we're going to account for sort of the initial recognition of, of some of these instruments. So, so yeah, absolutely. Starting with, uh, you know, what Matt discusses, the accounting acquirer is, is another key step in, you know, figuring out the accounting for these instruments. All right. That's helpful. So then let's move on to another topic that comes up often, and that would be these earnout arrangements and a lot of different discussions. And I, I know a lot of different structures, but can you share sort of the basics on these arrangements? Yeah. So, so, so typically where we see these earnout arrangements, they're, they're typically arrangements where the, the, the SPAC or, 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 or the consolidated entity, including the operating entity, will agree to issue additional shares after that merger occurs if certain performance measures are met. And, and, and usually those performance measures, at least the ones that I've seen, are based upon stock price. Um, so an example of one of them would be the entity would issue, let's say, an additional 100,000 shares if the um, volume weighted average stock price exceeds $14 
like 20 out of 30 trading days, and they'd issue another 100,000 shares um, if the same sort of measure exceeds like $20 per share. And, and usually these, these have terms of like three-year periods. And, and what they're basically saying is if stock price is measured based by like the, the, the average trading price for the day, sort of exceeds a level and it kind of stays there for some, some period of time, that will trigger the issuance of additional shares. You know, they're typically issued uh, when the SPAC purchases the operating company as opposed to before, you know, when a lot of the warrants might get issued. Um, so, so they're kind of part of the SPAC merger, as I, as I like to call it. But similar to warrants, they could be issued to many different counterparties. They could be issued to the sponsor of the SPAC. They could be issued to the former shareholders of the operating company that's being acquired. Um, and they could be issued to employees and, and service providers. And, um, you know, and think about the accounting. Um, you know, spoiler alert, some of this might be a little bit of a, a repeat of, uh, of what we talked about with, with warrants. But, but again, we focused a lot on you know, who was the earnout given to? Was it given to the former shareholders of Opco? Uh, was it the sponsors of the SPAC, employees, goods and service providers? Was it provided to holders of vested or unvested um, awards? Um, you know, like compensation awards. Um, and again, that that can determine uh, a little bit about what accounting model we're going to be under for these earnout arrangements. A little bit different than warrants for earnouts, we also focus a little bit on the form. Um, sometimes the um, the the earnout is issued in the form of a contract to issue shares, like a promise to issue more shares in the future. Sometimes it's issued in a in a share that's like restricted from transfer, but it could be forfeited if certain provisions are not met. And a lot of times legal form doesn't drive the accounting. We'll, we'll end up with the same accounting model, but it, it is important to understand the, the, the form. We, we often ask, are there multiple tranches? And, and what I mean by tranches, are, are there like multiple price triggers where different amounts of shares could be issued at each price trigger? Like in the, the example that I gave where there were two price triggers, 14 and $20. You know, again, we, we, we look for provisions that could cause changes in the settlement amount or the timing of settlement. Um, so we look for things about that, uh, like change in control provisions, liquidation, anti-dilution provisions in there that can impact the settlement amount. Um, we also look for for features that could cause the timing of restrictions to change or when they would lapse. And similar similar to warrants, um, they um, you know often really understand and will require discussion with, with counsel. And these can be really complex. Um, an example of one of the ones that we've seen out there that, that can be complex would be that um, Sometimes they call them the, the last person standing type arrangements. I, I, you might have heard that in the compensation space where, you know, they, they issue earnouts for X amount of shares. And if they get forfeited by one person, they get reallocated to other people. And, you know, again, that can, that can create some, some complexities. All right. And to that exact point, I next week we'll be interviewing Jay Celebert to talk specifically about some compensation considerations, but sticking today with sort of the non- compensation. I know we're really going to focus on the earnouts and warrants and, and get more into the guidance now, but any other sort of example financial instruments you would just highlight that you often see in these types of transactions? Yeah, it's 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 a good point. I mean, you know, earnouts and warrants have gotten a lot of the press, if you will, in, in the discussion. Um, but we do see some other complicated types of financing arrangements entered into with SPACs. So, um, 
So as uh, you, you might see convertible debt, um, preferred stock issuances with some fairly complex terms. Um, sometimes you see those in connection with the pipe investments that we had talked about earlier. Um, sometimes you just see them in connection with sort of, a, you know, raising additional capital, um, you know, at the date that, that it's merging with an operating company. So um, and, and sometimes some of the complex financing arrangements actually existed at the operating company level and will survive the SPAC merger, too. Um, and I think we have a podcast coming up, too, because on, on like things to think about when you're going from a private company to a public company, because some of the accounting that the private opco might have done might need to change once it becomes a public company as a part of a SPAC for those instruments. So there's a lot of moving parts to your point here, which can make the the analysis kind of kind of complicated. Well, yes, definitely a lot to think about. And I think it's a good reminder that again, don't just focus on these sort of more high profile because those other items, you know, could trip you up as well. But going back to warrants and earnouts, how should we be thinking about the accounting for those instruments in particular? Well, yeah. And I think as we mentioned earlier, and you mentioned the, the first thing we, you need to focus on is why were the earnouts warrants or warrants issued? Um, you know, were they issued for compensation arrangements um, or for providing goods or services or, or those types of things? And as you mentioned, I know Jay is going to hit on a lot of the accounting topics for that. So I'll, I'll go ahead and just leave that to Jay since that's, that's, that's certainly his world. Um, and back to what you said earlier, um, about like Matt's podcast with the accounting acquirer, determining who the accounting acquirer might be very important with the initial recognition of some of these instruments. Um, but I'll, I'll stay in my lane for, for this podcast and sort of focus on the warrants and the earnouts that that don't fall into a compensation or, 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 or other arrangement. And so really what you're looking at is, can this be classified, these instruments be classified as equity instruments? Or do they have to be classified as liabilities? And and this area of the literature is is very complex. And um, again, it, it requires a very thorough understanding of the terms of the contract because sometimes terms that don't necessarily aren't the biggest economic drivers of the contract can impact the accounting. All right, so where do we start? What's the beginning of this uh, exciting accounting journey that we're going to go on here together? <laughs> I love your enthusiasm, Chip. I can't wait to hear where we're, where we're going to go. Well, okay, D- don't be too disappointed. The first thing is unit of account. Um, so the first thing we got to do is figure out, well, what are we evaluating for, for the account? So for example, um, earnouts with like multiple triggers that could result in multiple different share issuances. Frequently, we view the earnout as a single unit of account because you can't break it into its elements and separately trade it. But unit of account is is uh, is sort of the the first starting point. Then what we're going to do is we're going to pivot over to um, ASC 480. So that's the guidance out there. Um, that helps us determine the difference between liabilities and equity. And what it really does is define what's not equity. And so when do things have to be classified as liabilities under 480? An example of that in this space would be if you have a warrant on redeemable shares, on on shares that the the holder could redeem. That would be required to be a liability under 480. So so after we determine whether or not it has to be a liability under 480, then we're going to go to the derivative guidance in in, in 815.40. And what what's important to note here is that the guidance in 815.40 applies to these instruments, these contracts to issue shares, whether they actually technically meet the full definition of a derivative or not. When looking at 815.40, 
the first part of the analysis, the first question you ask yourself under this guidance is, is the instrument indexed to an entity's own stock? Now, within that, there's two parts of that first analysis. So the first, and, and it, it's, it can be complicated to determine which step you're in here, you know, and the rules are very different within each step. But basically within these steps, the first part of it is we analyze exercise contingencies. What could make it something that you could exercise or not exercise? What, what, what are the factors that, that could change the maturity of the instrument? And then the second thing that we look at is we look at how does the settlement amount change? Are there times where the amount of settlement could, could vary? Um, and we, you'll, you'll hear that referred to as sort of step one or step two. Um, and as I said, it's really important to determine which step you're in. And sometimes you could be in both because the rules in applying both of those steps are very different. So Chip, when you said this accounting journey, I had like a flash in my mind of those old board games like Candyland or Life, you know, where you're like going along, you can get like a nice bonus. This seems a little bit more like choose your own adventure book where it's very easy to get lost very fast. So to that point on the choose your own adventure, I think something that's really important here is whether or not something's indexed to an entity's own stock is something where we've seen then that cause a number of warrants and earnout arrangements to be liability classified. So can you go a little more into that? Yeah. So um, I think I think you're right. I mean, a lot of times where we've seen these earn out provisions and warrants, you know, fail to get equity classification has been exactly what you said is 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 in this step. Right. And sometimes we've seen them fail because of sort of the the, the first step. Right. In determining, you know, looking at the exercise contingencies and when something could be could be exercised. But a lot of the times it's in the settlement features. There are there are events or contingent events buried in these agreements that could change the settlement amount. And when we apply the guidance to those contingent events, we end up with them not being indexed to a company's own stock and therefore liability classified. Now, if you find your way through the indexation guidance, you know, you make your way through that part of the Candyland board, if you will. The next thing we ask ourselves, again, still under the 81540 guidance, is do we meet a number of additional criteria to be able to classify something as equity? And what that part of the guidance really is really focused on is will the company always have the ability to settle the contract in their own shares, or could they ever be forced to settle in cash? There's some new guidance that's uh, uh, effective next year, which changes some of the aspects of this part of the analysis. If it weren't complicated enough. Yeah. So the Candyland board is being updated and changed, um, but um, just something to mention. Now, taking a step back from all that, because that was a lot of detail, I'd say a couple of things. One, one of the hardest parts of applying this literature is the significance of the feature the probability of it ever happening doesn't influence the accounting at all. Um, we, we sort of do this analysis, forgetting about probability and, and just focusing on is something a possibility. So what does it all mean, right, at the end of the day? What it basically means is if you find yourself in a place where it has to be liability classified under 480 or because of 81540, it's going to be liability classified and it's going to be mark to market through PL. So it's going to be reported fair value. Changes in fair value are going to go through earnings um, as opposed to being classified as an equity arrangement where we wouldn't do some of that mark to market accounting. 
All right. So easier and less financial statement volatility if you get that equity classification. But I know that the SEC also weighed in on this, got a lot of press on April 12th, which highlighted some key elements of certain conclusions they had reached with respect to certain provisions, which are common in warrants issued by SPACs. So can you share a little bit more on that topic? Yeah, so so the the SEC did issue a, sort of a public statement focusing on some of the elements for accounting for for warrants, but but more broadly, it's worth noting that there's a number of releases from the SEC focused on SPACs on a number of different issues around them, not just accounting. Um, and it's so it's those are definitely worth a read if the SPAC space is something that 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 you're considering stepping into. Um, but focusing for a moment on on the release on on April twelfth. One of the things that the release was highlighting gets back to this indexation issue that we were talking about. And are there things that cause the settlement amount to change? And um, one of the things that the SEC observed is sometimes when SPACs issue warrants, as we mentioned early on, they issue warrants to the founders and the sponsors of the SPAC, but they also issue them to the public. And what you'll find is there are differences in some of the terms of these warrants. And, and the differences might be subtle, but they could impact the settlement amount of the warrants. And what the SEC observed was that the way that like these the, the private warrants work is if they were ever transferred outside of the sponsor's hands, they would become public warrants. And the SEC said, well, that's a change in the settlement provisions of the warrants that wouldn't be permitted by the literature and, and, and therefore require liability classification. So that was one thing the release highlighted, which was focused on that index, are you indexed your own stock? Another issue that was highlighted in there is focused on the other part of the test, uh, which is, uh, you know, you know, the ability to settle in, in your own equity. And, and what, the, what the staff observed was some of these warrants include provisions where the warrant holder could be cash settled in the event of a tender offer and some, you know, where somebody comes and makes an offer for the common shares of the company. And, and, and sometimes the way that those are structured, the tender offer wouldn't result in a change in control of the entity. And that sort of runs afoul of the accounting literature as well. Um, so that was another issue. It's, it's fairly nuanced. Um, and there's a number of other SPAC related issues that you'll see in these warrants. I would point people towards, we have and in-depth on SPAC mergers. It's in-depth 2021-01, the first one we issued this year. Um, and it's got a lot in there, and you'll probably hear it referred to on the other podcasts as well. Um, but it has a lot of details around the application of the rules that we've been talking about so far today. All right. Very helpful. And I think uh, we'll obviously put that in the show notes, but just listening to you, it's very clear the details really do matter here. Like we always, like we said, we always say that, but definitely if you're involved in one of these, focusing in on those nuances is going to be important. So then Chip, let's move to another topic that often comes up when we're talking about these types of, um, you know, shares or contracts to issue shares, and that's earnings per share, which again is something else that could get very complicated very quickly. And in particular, I think often these operating companies that are being acquired, you know, normally were private, wouldn't have present, wouldn't have been presenting EPS. However, now EPS is going to be required. So what are some highlights that you would give if you're newly calculating EPS? 
Yeah, so so you're you're absolutely right. Um, th- these are contracts to issue shares, and so naturally, you know, we're all well, all of us are programmed that the minute we hear that, we th- we think of earnings per share, right? And 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 you're right. EPS might be a new uh, a new thing for some of these companies and management teams. So um, not surprising, the EPS calculations can be complicated. Um, so maybe just to kind of f- to frame it a little bit, what we're going to do is assume we went through all of that guidance above. Um, and we've concluded that earnouts and warrants are, are separate units of account. Like there's earnouts and there's warrants, and we're going to analyze those separately. And let's also assume that we're accounting for all of these as contracts to issue shares. Um, and don't worry if, if you're not taking diligent notes on any of this, or or certainly the EPS session uh, section of this thing. It, it is also covered in in our in depth. Um, so, so maybe let's start with earnouts. So remember, earnouts are typically structured as contracts that if we meet certain stock price thresholds, we'll issue shares. So those are generally subject to the contingently issuable share guidance within the EPS literature. So breaking that down for a moment, let's start with basic EPS. So for basic EPS, we, we, we exclude these contingently issuable shares until the contingency is met and there's no longer a circumstance where those shares would not be issued. Once met, we include those shares in the weighted average number of shares outstanding. So, so think, I always think of the denominator of the EPS prospectively from the date the contingency is met going forward. Wait, is met or is not met? Is met. Okay. Is met. So, so, so we include them in EPS um, in the denominator prospectively from the point the contingency is met. Now, some earnout arrangements. You don't start looking at those stock price thresholds um, until uh, a vesting period begins, which might be six or 12 months after the SPAC's merger date. And in, in these cases, because if, if you're in a period where the vesting period hasn't started, they uh, you, you, you can't possibly earn those shares because the vesting period to earn them hasn't even started yet. And so they wouldn't be included in outstanding shares um, until the performance measures are met after the vesting period has begun. Um, that's, a, that's an important distinction, which, which we'll make from basic for versus diluted. The last point I make about basic EPS is some of these earnout arrangements permit the holders of the earnout arrangements to participate in any dividends relating to the underlying shares, even though they don't actually own the shares at this point. And if that happens, we, we we would call that a participating instrument, and we would have to do that two-class method of earnings per share, which uh, I will avoid taking people through on this podcast, but just know in the EPS chapter of our financial statement presentation guide, we have a lot of information about participating securities and how to do the two-class method. All right. So I know that was basic EPS, and I, I joke with uh, Jay Salibor that basic EPS is not so basic, uh, and clearly not in this case. But then I also know in this case, diluted, uh, there's even more to think about. So can you give us some highlights there? Yeah. So so as you said, diluted rules are, are a little bit different, and, and, and the basic rules are certainly not basic. So the way the diluted rules would work is if all the necessary con- conditions have been satisfied by the end of the reporting period, so the performance measures have been met. Um, then the shares are included in the denominator of EPS, but they are included as of the beginning of the period. 
All right. And I think that's a really key point here because that's different than what we talked about for basic EPS, because we're now going to include these shares at the beginning of the period versus when it's met. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that is a very big difference between basic and diluted here. So if you have an earnout provision, which which they typically do, uh, that is based upon like the market price of the company stock at a future date, for example, like after some period of time and, and the beginning of what you know they might call a vesting period. Um, the way we, that we compute EPS for diluted EPS is we reflect the number of shares that would be issued based upon the market price at the end of the reporting period if that's diluted. So we sort of pretend like the end of the reporting period is within the vesting period, and that's how we determine how many shares get issued. And sometimes what you'll see, most of the time, what you'll see is there's a bit of a formulaic calculation. So as I mentioned earlier, it might be based upon the volume weighted average price of the stock over a set amount of days. So let's just, for example, it's a five out of 10 days. What we would do is we would start at the end of the reporting period and look back, you know, in my example, 10 days and see if based upon stock price had it been met five out of 10 days. And if so, we would include it in diluted EPS. And again, another important difference weren't like basic EPS if the vesting period hasn't started, we can't include anything in basic EPS, but for diluted EPS, uh, it could be in diluted EPS, even if the vesting period hasn't technically started, because we're pretending that the end of the period occurs during the vesting period. All right. So definitely important item to highlight that that's another difference. And also to highlight, probably a good idea to look at the EPS chapter of our financial statement presentation guide if you're looking at this. But Chip, I know you have a few more reminders too. Yeah. So, so for diluted earnings per share, you know, we, we, when we talk about earnings per share, a lot of times we focus on the denominator, like how many shares we should put into share count. But for diluted earnings per share calculations, we may need to make adjustments to the numerator. So, you know, the numerator is net income available to common shareholders. So the two most common examples in the SPAC space are one, if the, the earnouts are liability classified, um, we have to market to market. And so for diluted EPS, we back the mark to market out of the numerator. Um, now, a lot of people think generally that when you have when you're in a loss position, for example, from EPS, that the application of these models will always be anti-dilutive. And so you would ignore it. That's not necessarily true, particularly when you're talking about backing out the mark to market. If you have to back out a mark to market gain, that could actually increase the loss and therefore be dilutive. Um, and the other thing is, I mentioned earlier, if, if they're participating securities and, and you're doing two class, you would back out the impact of two class. And, you know, as a reminder, right, dilutive EPS can't be higher than basic EPS. So if these things are anti-dilutive, then, then we wouldn't we wouldn't do. Them. Yes, I think people might like that answer in this case. So then, Chip, if we move on to warrants, what are some of the things we should think about there? So so warrants are a little bit simpler, uh, which is probably a big relief to our listeners who, who were working their way through um, through through that part of the of, of the of the uh, of the game board so basic EPS for warrants we generally don't include them in basic earnings per share unless the there there are shares that are issuable for little or no consideration so think like penny warrants warrants with a one cent strike um, or if they're participating securities, if we allow them to participate in dividends and we have the two class. But for basic EPS, obviously upon exercise where the shares are outstanding, you know, they would impact basic EPS. For diluted earnings per share, 
we use what's known as the treasury stock method. Um, and basically what that boils down to is it has a dilutive impact if the average price for the period exceeds the exercise price of the warrant. That will determine the amount of shares. Um, and similar to above, we, we might have to make adjustments to the numerator for diluted EPS if the warrants are liability classified and being marked to market or if they're participating securities. The, um, th there may be a vesting period for warrants similar to earnouts, which might require the, the consideration of the contingently issuable share guidance. And so, again, I would point people to uh, some of the stuff we talked about above and in our, in our in-depth on, uh, on, on how to think about those situations. Um, and, and finally, again, warrants like earnouts, you know, we diluted EPS can't be higher than basic. So we don't we don't consider anti-dilutive adjustments. All right. So, Chip, I'm impressed if our listeners were able to hang with us through that full adventure, because definitely a lot to think about and a lot of details you really need to focus on. So taking a step back, obviously, you referenced some good guidance, and we'll include that in the show notes. But if you are dealing with teams or clients, particularly that are new to a lot of this, and often I'm sure they're a little in a panic thinking of all this guidance that they might not be familiar with. What's sort of the advice that you would give in terms of taking a step back and, and thinking this through before you get into all this detail? Yeah. So the first thing I would tell people is don't assume that your the terms of your agreements are the same as what you might see in other public companies uh, or other SPACs or other companies that have gone public. Cause like I said earlier, um, like to think of them as snowflakes. Sometimes they're all a little bit different. Really getting into the facts of the agreements, you know. I and, and what I tell people sometimes it's helpful to do before you even start the accounting is just take a piece of paper and anytime you identify how some event might impact the earnout or the warrants, like maturity date, like whether it's exercisable or not like the number of shares that could be issued, like if your returns get capped, anytime there's a change in one of those things, write it down and write what causes it. Um, because I think getting that and a crisp understanding of those facts is sometimes the, mo can't the most difficult part of the analysis. And then with that, you can kind of jump into the accounting literature. Right. And that's where I think with that information, then you really can follow through some of the guidance that we've written in terms of if you have this, do that. So I think that's great advice, Chip. And as always, really appreciate all your insights. Thank you. Thanks. That does it for today. If you enjoyed listening to Chip, check out this week's Tuesday episode on Fair Value Disclosures. Also, are you looking for CPE credit? In case you missed it, registration is now open for our third quarter accounting webcast. We have three dates, September 14th, 23rd, and 29th. So head over to viewpoint.pwc.com to register. And while you're there, you can also register for our newsletter to help you stay up to date on all of our events. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. 
This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.